Welcome to the Age Reversing Blueprint Podcast, where we discuss tools and tips to help you reverse your age naturally. If you Google and type Jeff Bezos testosterone therapy, you'll see several high-profile doctors look at pictures of Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk or other high-profile celebrities out there. And some of them openly admit to using testosterone replacement therapy. But the doctors are saying that there's very objective visual biomarkers of these people uh, at least arresting aging, or the, or in some cases, even kind of aging in reverse, specifically about Jeff Bezos. If you look at pictures of him in the late 90s or early 2000s, he looks obviously more aged than he, than he does now, and more importantly, more feminized than, than he does now. And Jeff Bezos is very famously on testosterone replacement therapy. And I think in several interviews, he basically said that, you know, his cortisol levels were through the roof, which you would expect from somebody running Amazon, right? But that's what happens. You know, it's a great example of the pro-aging effects of cortisol. And because cortisol activates the enzyme aromatase, people with high cortisol tend to have high estrogen. So also explains the kind of feminization that was seen in Jeff Bezos in the late 90s to the early 2000s. All of that is being all but reversed now. If you look at him right now, he looks like a miniature bodybuilder. And that's what, you know, several doctors are, are saying. They haven't treated him, but they're saying this cannot be explained by training alone. There's like obvious dramatic increase in muscle mass and loss of central fatty tissue, meaning around the midsection. And that usually can happen only through some kind of a drastic reduction of cortisol, or at least drastic reduction of the ratio of cortisol to the anti-cortisol hormones, such as DHA, testosterone in males. <laughs> All right. I am super excited to be interviewing Georgie Dinkoff a second time. Uh, For those of you who know who he is, he doesn't need a bio, but for those that may not know who Georgie Dinkoff is, there's so much to say and and so much to get to today. I'm going to abbreviate his his bio, but basically he is a self-taught guy. Um, His interest in health topics continued after he left his job. And while researching aspirin and the effects of the brain circa 2011, he stumbled on Ray Pete's website. And I think that's what really dug down into the bioenergetics field. His ideas on bioenergetics and his control by dietary and environmental factors as the ultimate causal factor in health, disease, and even aging immediately appealed to Georgie. And since then, he's been doing research in that field. So Georgie, I'm super excited to get started. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for inviting me again. Hopefully it will be, I'll be useful to your listeners. Oh, yes. Listen, I went through that interview several times and I I came up with some really great questions for you today. So for those that want to hear the past interview, we really got into metabolic flexibility. We'll leave links there. And Georgie, as I was telling you before we got started, I, I walked away with a lot of ahas that were contrarian to what what's being taught. And I, I've gone down the cortisol rabbit holes, if you will. And even just our conversation when we just had that amazing insight um, has really shifted my, my perspective. And I wanted to share that. So cortisol is not what we thought. It, it's the truth behind it is it's at a rapidly aging stress hormone. And one of the sacred cows or the contrarian thinking is that cortisol is um, anti-inflammatory when in fact it's pro-inflammatory. So maybe in your, in your, an amazing way of bringing difficult concepts into an easy, understandable way, explain that to the person who thought, well, cortisol is anti-inflammatory and I take prednisone, hydrocortisone for, um, an anti-inflammatory immune response or suppression, but ultimately it's putting more oil on the fire perhaps. So maybe let's go into that. 
I think the, the, the probably the, the best comparison that I can give you is with the opioids, which are widely used for pain management in the medical field, and a lot of people are abusing them for these for these pain relieving properties. However, it's very well known that basically if you continue using opioids, you develop tolerance to them. And then, and then not only you're going to start needing higher and higher dosage to basically uh, be able to tamp down the same level of pain, but eventually, when if you try to wean off or stop the opioids, the, your baseline of pain is going to shoot up tremendously. In other words, you're going to be in a worse position than you started. Um, and uh, the pathways for the opioids uh, are fairly well known. They increase prolactin, histamine, serotonin. They also increase the expression of an endotoxin receptor known as TLR4. And all of these are known to be involved in chronic pain. So when, while you're taking opioids, by activation of the opioid receptor, which is uh, a receptor that our endogenous opioids known as the beta endorphins also activate, yes, you are uh, kind of like inhibiting the signals, at least the peripheral signals from uh, for pain to reach the brain and not a kind of like registered as a pain signal. But it's, while you're doing that, you're upregulating the machinery that causes these, these pain signals to travel much more rapidly. So as soon as you stop the opioid, you're in a worse position than where you started. So you're kind of like in a, in a catch-22, or, or, or actually once you, once you start, you can't really stop unless you're taking care of, you know, kind of like, unless you also take care of, of reducing these inflammatory mediators that were upregulated while you're using the opioids. And most people are not doing that simply because for a lot of, you know, whenever you prescribe opioid for a pain, um, there's there's little concern. And now it's starting to become a concern, but there was little concern about the long-term effects on, on pain. Now doctors are starting to find out through various long-term studies that people uh, that are using opioids long-term, they actually end up being worse, right? Their pain starts to become unmanageable. And once they become resistant to the opioids, there's very little you can do for them. I mean, the opioids really are the kind of like the end stage of pain treatment. Um, in, in the hospital, they're usually given to terminal cancer patients or just in general, the terminal people just to kind of like ease the transition to them dying. But it's really like a last last resort step. So if patients stop responding to opioids, then there's very little that, that the doctor can do for them, or at least that's that's what they think. So so there wasn't much of a thought to this process, but now they're, they're starting to find out that there's this, this booming addiction to opioids. They're saying, well, what's going on? Like it's it, just the, the, the pleasure response cannot explain the addiction and the need for using higher and higher doses. What explains this addiction and the need for higher doses is the development of tolerance, specifically the tolerance to the pain easing effects of the opioids. And, and you know, people keep using more, but the more you use, the more you upregulate the machinery for inflammation and chronic pain in the future if you were to stop the opioids. And something similar turns out to be working with cortisol as well. So cortisol has undisputed anti-inflammatory effect while you're using it. Um, it inhibits the, the, the release of the inflammatory interleukins 1 and 6. Um, it also inhibits the release of something called tumor necrosis factor alpha and the activation of something called nuclear factor kappa B. And those really are like the, the in combination there, basically the... Um, uh, the the primary uh, kind of the primary pathway towards towards chronic inflammation. Uh, another thing that the glucocorticoids do is while you're taking them, they're inhibiting the activity of the enzymes cyclooxygenase and lipoxygenase, which are the enzymes producing inflammatory mediators known as prostaglandins or leukotrienes from the polyunsaturated fatty acids. However, recent studies discovered that uh, while cortisol or synthetic glucocorticoids are inhibiting the activity of those inflammatory enzymes, they're simultaneously upregulating their expression. Um, so basically, just like the opioids, you're developing tolerance 
to the to the effects of the of the glucocorticoids. But the moment you stop using them, now all of this machinery that responsible that was responsible for producing inflammatory signals now it works in overdrive because the cortisol helped build more of that specific machinery. Um, and I think the studies that I sent you specifically said that cortisol regulates the genetic expression of the cyclooxygenase and the lipoxygenase enzymes. Um, and also cortisol upregulates uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the expression of the enzyme tryptophan hydroxylase and also histidine decarboxylase. So the moment you stop taking the glucocorticoids, you're going to be producing more than before, more than baseline of the prostaglandins, the leukotriens, histamine, and serotonin. And L serotonin uh, kind of has like a reputation of being a happy hormone, at least peripherally. Now it's known that serotonin is anything but. It's very dangerous, profibrotic molecule. Um, and there are many drugs that are currently in, clinic, currently in clinical trials that are blocking one of the serotonin receptors, 5-HT2B to be precise, that, that have been shown to prevent and even reverse peripheral fibrosis, conditions that were considered incurable. So taking glucocorticoids, while it makes you feel good currently, for you know, presently, uh, in, in the background upregulates the machinery that will make you a lot worse than you were before you started taking the glucocorticoids as soon as you stop them. So, you know, in a, you know, in a, you're in a this situation where once you st start taking the glucocorticoids, you can't really stop unless you take measures to basically uh, inhibit a lot of that machinery that, that cortisol started upregulating while you were taking the glucocorticoid. And of course, because this, this is kind of like disparate knowledge, not really put together, uh, clinically, not that it isn't known. I think specific doctors know that, that there's the there's the, the famous glucocorticoid re rebound effect. So doctors are aware that this can happen. They're just not really digging or at least connecting the dots with preclinical research, saying, "Hey, why are my patients becoming worse after I withdraw the corticoids?" We don't we don't want them on corticoids because we know, even aside from the pro-aging effect of cortisol. Uh, we know that corticoids, uh, glucocorticoids, chronic use can cause osteoporosis. We know it can cause insulin resistance. We know it can cause diabetes, et cetera, et cetera. So I definitely don't want my patients to be taking glucocorticoids forever. Uh, but my immediate concern is that I gave them glucocorticoids for asthma or, you know, maybe COVID or some other uh, condition that, that's driven by inflammation. And now I want them to stop because, I, like I said, I don't want them to take them forever. And now they actually presenting with even higher inflammatory biomarkers than before. What's going on here? What can we do to, to, to prevent that? Um, and I think the, the answer is, well, um, don't start using glucocorticoids to start with. There are other anti-inflammatory steroids that are there, uh, specifically pregnenolone, progesterone, to a degree, di uh, dihydroepiandrosterone, but that, that one can be potentially dangerous because it can convert easily into estrogen. But yeah, really cortisol, just like the opioids, you're, you're going to pay a very heavy price for using it now, later on, um, to to basically, uh, you know, it, it's it's like a, what should you call it? It's like a power drill. You're using the power drill to solve a problem that didn't really require to start with. And the, the power drill did a lot of peripheral damage. And when you stop using the power drill, now you have a, a hole and a lot of damage around it that needs to be repaired. And if you don't, the whole wall may start crumbling simply because you destroyed it using a very powerful tool that's very non-selective, non-specific. Yeah, it's a great example. And I wish that were the only example in 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 pharmaceuticals and just in healthcare in general, that if you don't address the the problem or or the contributing problems and you're using it as a stopgap, you still are burdened with the responsibility of figuring out why why this is happening in the first place. Uh Georgia, I wanted to talk a little bit more about though 
the cortisol and, and the impact. So mm -hmm. one of the things that I walked away with is so many people are thinking about adrenal fatigue and cortisol is really low or, or cortisol is really high. And the question I would ask you is, it does it really matter in terms of if it's a glucocorticoid genomic signaling problem? Um, I, I guess the question would come down to what are we, we talked a little bit about this earlier. How do we quantify what's going on based on testing mm -hmm. to be able to determine how to approach solving this without getting on a uh, on a cortis uh, anti anti catabolic. Uh, detrimental drug like that yeah so one thing i forgot to mention i think it feeds great into your question is that i recently found a study because i've long suspected that it's true but every doctor i talked to said no cortisol has a very robust negative feedback mechanism so cortisol is almost never dysregulated unless you have uh, let's say people with depression they have cortisol insensitivity there are so-called non-responders of the dexamethasone suppression test and so are people with cushion disease and, and potentially ectopic cushion syndrome if they have a cortisol producing tumor somewhere peripherally. So the doctors say these are very rare cases. In the vast majority of cases, cortisol has a very robust negative feedback mechanism. In other words, if your cortisol shoots up beyond where it should be, basically it, it triggers negative feedback against the corticotropin releasing hormone and then ACTH. And then ultimately cortisol levels are going to go down. Turns out that this is the central mechanism. And yes, the negative feedback does exist there. Surprisingly to me, even though I kind of suspected it, uh, but I was able to find evidence that peripherally that is not true. Not only is it not true, cortisol peripherally has a positive feedback mechanism. It stimulates its own production. Um, and one of the first kind of like pieces of evidence that kind of uh, drove me towards that line of thought was that there was a rat study that was an uh, animal study that was looking at maybe four or five years ago. And it showed that if you if you uh, take animals and you and you put them on a fasting diet, basically they do intermittent fasting and simultaneously with that, you also make them run on a wheel. In other words, imitating, a, you know, ex a, a endurance exercise in humans after about four to six weeks, basically, uh, if you stop that regimen that, that, the, that the animals have, they become immediately profoundly insulin resistant and actually even diabetic within a week or so of going back to their normal regimen without any change in calories. And the study uh, utilized some of the animals, looked at their tissues and whatnot, and discovered that while central production of cortisol was within bounds, they didn't have elevated cortisol in the blood, they had, they had strikingly elevated cortisol in peripheral tissues and specifically, they had very high levels of the cortisol, the rate-limiting cortisol-producing enzyme uh, known as 11-beta-hydroxysteroid dehydrogenase type 1. Um, and then for the animals that, that, that remained alive, um, the researchers tried to put them on a regular calorie diet, low-fat diet, low-carb diet. Nothing worked. These animals remained diabetic until they were given an anti-cortisol drug known as IU486. So it was an indication that cortisol does something peripherally, which is not necessarily detectable in regular blood tests, that basically you can have a person there with normal blood cortisol levels, yet they can be very obese or very insulin resistant, and they cannot tolerate sugar, their blood sugar is high, and doctors are stumped, they're saying, well, what's going on? This shouldn't be happening. This person's cortisol and insulin levels are normal. But if you actually look in their fatty tissue, and this is, started, is starting to be done more regularly, biopsy of tissues with uh, of people with type 2 diabetes, uh, it's been... Uh, uh, several publications already uh, came out showing very high expressions of 11-beta-HSD1 and very high levels of cortisol, at least in the fatty tissue. So the fatty tissue is very insulin resistant, even in the presence of normal cortisol levels in, in the blood. 
So how can we test for that? Well, this cortisol has to go somewhere. So if, if there's peripheral production, high peripheral, peripheral production of cortisol and normal centrally, right? Meaning from the adrenals controlled by the brain, um, this cortisol still has to be excreted and processed somehow. So I think the Dutch test will be actually one way to actually look at that. Uh, and again, I emphasize the blood test will most likely not discover this. And multiple, uh, thousands probably blood tests have been done on people with type 2 diabetes. They show either normal or slightly elevated blood levels of cortisol. Uh, certainly not enough to explain the obesity and the insulin resistance being seen in these people. But now that uh, the, the doctors trying to do the biopsies of fatty tissue of, of, of these people, they realize that cortisol is, is a problem. It's just not visible on the blood test. So the Dutch test will probably demonstrate it, assuming that the the uh, phase two uh, um, detox enzymes, the, the phase two system in the liver is working well, and then the kidneys are working well, uh, because they, you know, after the liver takes the cortisol from the blood, it, it uh, attaches either a glucuronic acid or a sulfate group, makes it more water soluble. And then if the kidneys are working well, they're supposed to uptake it, and then you excrete it with the urine. Um, now, unfortunately, uh, in people with already established type 2 diabetes, you may not see that because you know you, you may not see change much change on the Dutch test because their kidneys are already shot. Uh, kidney disease is very common in people with type 2 diabetes. But I still think that uh, uh, all the way until the end stages of diabetes type 2, where you actually have kidney failure, you should be able to see on the Dutch test a dysregulation in cortisol. Um, you'll probably see elevated levels of cortisol, but lower levels of the 5-alpha reduced metabolites of cortisol, which are known to have anti-cortisol effect. And I think the Dutch test specifically has that. They're basically, they're looking at your regular cortisol and the 5-alpha reduced metabolites. And I think one of the measures that they do is that if the ratio of the regular cortisol to the 5-alpha tetrahydrocortisol is, is above a certain level, they're saying you're in a stage of cortisol dominance. Um, so, so yeah, so one way to catch it is with the, uh, with the Dutch test. Um, and another one would be tissue biopsy, which is now started to be, be, been done more often on patients. But I think a lot of people, first of all, they bulk at getting, you know, getting stabbed with needles several times. And most doctors are probably unwilling to do it because insurance usually doesn't cover it unless it's part of some kind of a clinical study. Uh, so for most people, I would say a combination of the blood test and the Dutch test will be good. Uh, and if they can do a cheek swab, that's another one, but a fairly expensive test. Some labs will be willing to do cellular analysis of hormones uh, if you send them tissue samples. And a non-invasive one would be to do a cheek swab. Uh, another one would be um, if you can test in um, uh, nail uh, and, and hair, because the cortisol, uh, in order to get there, it has to go through capillary through the capillaries, and and we're finding we're finding now that uh, in in people with normal cortisol levels, um, and actually great example with menopausal women, where which are supposed to be in a state of estrogen deficiency, in all, every single one that we tested so far, we found out that their estrogen levels, at least one of the estrogens, is high in hair or nails, and their cortisol levels are either at the upper limit of normal or above, but in all cases, people with obesity. Uh, or type 2 diabetes, or any kind of a chronic condition, either have elevated cortisol in hair or nails, or at least a ratio of cortisol to the anti-cortisol steroids, such as DHEA, unisex, because we produce about the same amount, both genders, or cortisol to testosterone ratio, specifically males, it's elevated beyond a certain optimal level. Uh, so it's really not about so much about the absolute levels of cortisol you're producing, unless you have Cushing syndrome or Cushing disease. It's more about the ratio of cortisol, which is the pro-diabetic, pro-obesity, pro-aging versus the other steroids, which happen to be anti-cortisol, which are known as the youth hormones, and they tend to have anti-diabetic, anti-obesity, anti-aging effect. Um, if you go on Google and type uh, Jeff Bezos testosterone therapy, uh, you'll see several doctors, very high-profile doctors, look at 
pictures of Jeff Bezos and uh, and Elon Musk and several other high-profile uh, celebrities out there. Um, and some of them openly admit to using testosterone replacement therapy. Uh, but the doctors are saying that there's very objective um, visual biomarkers of these people uh, at least arresting aging, or the, or in some cases even kind of aging in reverse. That was specifically uh, specifically about Jeff Bezos, who, if you look at pictures of him in the late '90s or early 2000s, he looks obviously more aged than he, than he does now, and more importantly, more feminized than he than, than he does now. And Jeff Bezos is very famously on testosterone replacement therapy. And I think in several interviews, he basically said that you know his cortisol levels were through the roof, which you would expect from somebody running Amazon, right? Uh, but that's what happens. You know, it's a great example of the pro-aging um, uh, effects of cortisol. And because cortisol activates the enzyme aromatase, people with high cortisol also tend to have high estrogen. So also explains the kind of feminization that was seen in Jeff Bezos in the late 90s to the early 2000s. All of that is being... All all but reverse now. If you look at him right now, he looks like a miniature bodybuilder. Uh, and that's what, you know, several doctors are, are saying. Uh, they haven't treated him, but they're saying this cannot be explained by training alone. There's like obvious increase, dramatic increase in muscle mass and loss of central fatty tissue, meaning around the mid, I'm, I'm sorry, the, the midsection. And that usually can happen only through some kind of a drastic reduction of cortisol or at least drastic reduction of the ratio of cortisol to the anti-cortisol hormones such as DHA and testosterone in males. I hope you're getting tremendous value from our content and learning how to slow your rate of aging. I have a really exciting announcement. I've just completed the complete age reversing blueprint user guide and complete with learning how to not just slow your rate of aging, learning nutritional bioenergetics, learning about circadian rhythm entrainment, the six key factors that you need to be aware of, learning how to make sure that the environment isn't accelerating your age-related biomarkers, and of course, mastering your sleep. This course is going to be retailing for $997, but as a gift for me to you for watching our content and subscribing to our channel, I'm going to be giving this away for free, just for a limited time only. Mm -hmm. Leave your name and email, and I'll be sure to send you the complete age-reversing blueprint user's guide right away. You said a lot there, and I love. I want to unpack a little bit of it for 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 me and for for people who are listening. So I do a lot of Dutch tests, and I I, I realized, Georgie, that the central mechanism and the peripheral mechanism are on two different pages when I did that test, and I would know. Okay, well, the brain in its in its attempt to keep the body alive and the prioritization has a different agenda than the the peripheral tissues and basically that's what you're saying is you have this um discommunication or at least other other uh genomics going on when the brain is signaling and down regulating but all of that is still being released and you have an enzyme it's not just 11 beta hsd that converts cortisone to cortisol but you have the binding proteins, yep. you have heat yep. shock proteins, you have so many compensatory mechanisms that it's not as easy as just saying, okay, the brain signals to the adrenals, the adrenal feedback, and that's it, that's all. Um, you know, 90%, I read somewhere up to 90% of the the dysfunction or the breakdown occurs outside of the adrenals and, and not the adrenals itself. Exactly. So it brings new credence in terms of I have adrenal fatigue or my cortisol is low or my cortisol is high. It's not the absolute amount. It's the relative amount when you're looking at different angles. Like you said, if you're looking at an x-ray, you don't just take front to back. You need a side, you need an oblique. You need to look at all these different ratios. 
Um, and you're suggesting with the Dutch t hormone test, it's a really good place to start to be able yeah. to get a, a sense of the waters of central feedback and peripheral and, and getting an understanding. And then you went into discussing um, potentially doing a, a longer term, either a hair or nail sample. Maybe you can give a little more insight into that. And then, of course, what's um, what looks at in terms of the blood testing as well and what some of those ratios should look like to get an understanding of, is this a problem for, for me? I'm rapidly aging and I think my cortisol isn't, I accept the fact that it's not super low or super high, but how can I get some insight with this? So basically in a healthy young person, I think the Dutch test and something like hair and nails will probably have almost a perfect one-to-one -one correlation because anything that's produced in excess and reflected it in, in the hair and nails should be excreted or at least shown as being excreted in excess in the Dutch test. Now, as we're getting into a progressive pathology or it would increase aging when the liver and kidneys are not working so well anymore, then you may start having a discrepancy. So ideally, all three tests, which is blood, which shows you transport mechanism and production of the or, of the, of the uh, sources, right? Uh, how, how well the adrenals work or for the testosterone, how level the gonads are working or progesterone, the ovaries. Um, so ideally, you should have all three types of tests. The long-term exposure, which can be shown by biopsy or, or hair or nails. Then you have the central production mechanism, which is the blood the blood levels. Then you have the Dutch test, which is the excretion. Uh, and together, basically, it, it, this shows you how, how much you're producing, where is it going, and how well it's being deactivated and excreted. Because ultimately, no matter what hormone you're producing, I would say the only one that you can probably never overdose on is pregnenolone. Everything else, at some point, will probably start having some kind of a side effect if it's not getting properly excreted. And by doing these three tests, you're going to find out the production, the transport, and the disposal. Um, and, you know, for, for uh, um, you know, starting with a Dutch test, I think it's a really good idea. Uh, but also, um, so, okay, so you, you want to talk about, like, how, how people can find out... Uh, so, so maybe just looking at the ratios, you told me oh, okay, yes, yes. good on the, yeah. on the blood, uh, on the um, sort of on the yeah. transport side of things, right? So, so yeah, so for the blood test, if you go to the doctor and do the regular blood tests, and if all the hormones are in range, you're probably going to get sent home and said everything's fine. Or at least, you know, there's something close to one, either the lower or the upper limit, you may get called for a second test. But as we've seen, and there are quite a few studies being published on both tissue levels, blood levels, and even hair and hair levels, it's not so much the absolute levels of a steroid that matter, because that kind of only tells you about the pathology in the specific organ that's producing it, um, but it's actually the ratio of these steroids. So in other words, um, a lot of people that say, hey, I have adrenal fatigue, they present with, let's say, normal uh, in the first in the, in the initial stages of adrenal fatigue, they present with normal, maybe slightly elevated levels of cortisol, but very low levels of DHA sulfate. Um, and then the answer is no, you don't have adrenal fatigue because cortisol is produced by the adrenal, so they're still working, right? It's it's what happens is that you you're under uh, probably acute stress and acute elevations of cortisol are known to inhibit the enzyme seventeen twenty lyase, which is the rate limiting step for producing DHEA. So that's the initial stage of basically, uh, initially in a young person, when they presented with stress, they produce both cortisol and DHEA and, or DHEA sulfate. If that stress continues for a week or more, then the levels of DHEA sulfate start to decline because the cortisol is actually inhibiting the production of DHEA. If that continues for long and how long, it really depends on your, I don't know, uh, not I don't want to say genetics, but basically your inheritance patterns, how well, how guilty your parents were and how resilient really you are and how well you're taking care of yourself. They can go on from a few months to years 
eventually you're going to start seeing cortisol also start to decline. And that really, if it declines into, below sufficient levels, you get diagnosed with full-blown Addison disease, and then you're going to need adrenal failure, in other words. You're going to start needing supplements with cortisol and also the other anti-cortisol hormones. Very rarely we see that, like, unless it's a person is already in the hospital and very, very sick. Um, so you, what you want to look is the ratios. And the unisex ratio, which has been shown so far to be the best long-term predictor of all-cause mortality and all-cause morbidity. In other words, the, if you're going to do one test and you want to know your, 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 your long-term risk of disease or dying from any kind of a condition, it's the cortisol to DHEA ratio or the cortisol to DHEA sulfate ratio. And multiple studies have demonstrated that whether you measure in blood or hair or nails or even tissues, you want the ratio to be in favor of DHEA. In other words, cortisol to DHEA should be below one. In fact, below one is not sufficient. Uh, you want it to be below 0.5 because multiple studies demonstrated that after you cross the 0.5 barrier, which means you're getting closer, you're moving in favor of cortisol, you already start getting... Uh, diagnosable pathologies such as insulin resistance, diabetes type 2, clinical depression, uh, psychosis, which cortisol can cause in very high amounts, right? But for optimal health, you want it to be no more than 0.3. Uh, and that's that's the ratio that we're seeing in, in uh, young children already in puberty because the DHA starts getting overproduced in puberty. Um, and in general, people people that have not been to the hospital have not had any kind of like a acute infectious episode of a serious disease like pneumonia or anything like that. That's that's what you want to see in a healthy person. There's a, a male-specific ratio, which is the cortisol to, to testosterone, and you want that ratio to be, uh, I would say, below 15. So below uh, below 10 is ideal, but it's very difficult these days simply because the testosterone levels are <laughs> were, uh, uh, relentlessly declining. Um, but ideally, you want it to be below 10. So in other words, cortisol to 10, uh, cortisol to testosterone, 10 to 1. Um, over 20, several studies demonstrated that a ratio over 20 in males reliably predicts at the very least obesity. Um, and over 30, every single person tested with this ratio was type 2 diabetic. Um, so, and once again, we're seeing here, cortisol is actually the thing that's driving this pathology. And it's testosterone that specifically in males has an anti-cortisol effect. In, in, in both sexes, DHA is, the, is actually also an anti-glucocorticoid at the receptor level and also inhibiting the, 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 the enzymatic pathways. Uh, DHA does inhibit 11-beta-HSD1 and activates 11-beta-HSD2, which deactivates cortisol. So really like a, a universally anti-cortisol hormone, DHA. So for both genders, cortisol to DHA, cortisol to DHA sulfate, and then specifically for males, cortisol to testosterone. Recent study demonstrated that you can diagnose post-traumatic stress, stress disorder just by looking at this ratio of cortisol to testosterone. And if it was over 20, the male in all likelihood uh, had some kind of a psychiatric disease, specifically post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, so I, I think it's a pretty pretty decent indication that cortisol is not what we want to be elevated, at least in the long run. Yes, it's life-saving hormone, but just like all the life-saving hormones, you pay a very heavy price for it. So in other words, your life should not be always in danger. Because if it is, and that's what cortisol is kind of like keeping you alive, then you're paying with uh, you're paying the price by having a lot of other enzymatic machinery and structure of your body and the cells disintegrate simply to kind of shift resources towards keeping your life because that's the primary goal and that's the role of cortisol in other words constant strive is not a good it's not a very good thing for our health
Awesome. Awesome information. You know, I told you before we started, I was rethinking about doing the Dutch test just because of that very fact. You can do a, a blood spot, a hair, a nail, your, you know, a sample and, and just see those ratios. But I agree with you. I, if you want to get a complete picture of, of what's going on with sort of with quote unquote, the broken bone, you get as many different angles as you possibly can, um, which is a good dovetail, Georgie, into my my other sacred cow or uh the 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 i guess the non-traditional thought process of of inflammation mm -hmm. and how cortisol and just the we well let's just get into it so what you talked about last time was uh part of the problem with uh with not converting the food we eat and the air we breathe into H2O, CO2, and ATP is that those electrons don't make it all the way to the, the end terminal. And then you have this excessive state of reduction, which I had to really scratch my head and think, okay, I'm writing this down. I'm thinking about these reductants or all these hydrogens. Um, so anyways, you could say it more eloquently than me, but maybe explain to the listener that it's not so much these reactive oxidative species that are creating the inflammatory milieu or the setting up the problem for inflammation, but it's this excessive state of reduction where we're bioenergetically not creating ATP effectively. Maybe kind of give us some insight on that. Yeah. So basically in order for, for us to be in a good healthy state, uh, we don't want unpaired electrons floating around in the body. They're highly reactive, right? And they will probably react with molecular oxygen and since the electrons in our in our bodies, the ones that are free floating, are in the form of hydrogen ions, the, that usually results in the creation of either the superoxide anion or the hydroxyl radical. Um, and basically, you know, those these are highly reactive, uh, and they tend to uh, uh, attack vulnerable molecules. And the most vulnerable ones are the polyunsaturated fats. So. If, you, if you're in a state with excess electrons, these electrons will create the reactive oxygen species because they have to go somewhere, right? Um, and there are several mechanisms. One of them is the ROS, which is probably the worst way to dispose of them. A less dangerous one, but still not optimal, is the body uses the excess electrons to synthesize ex uh, a, a large amount of citric acid, which, which feeds into something called the fatty acid synthase enzyme, and we synthesize fats. So, so you can look at obesity as a very reliable indicator that the electrons that you're getting from food are not meeting their proper terminal acceptor, which is oxygen. Um, and, you know, the, this leads to a lot of people to say, well, th these people should just not eat that much. You know, they're, they're, yes, if the electrons are coming from food, this means they're eating too, many, too much food, too many electrons. doesn't always work like that. I mean, there are plenty of studies showing that you can have a person uh, subsist and even gain weight, uh, and mostly in the form of fat, of course, not muscle, gain weight on a very low calorie diet. One of the best examples in humans is the recent show, which I think at this point has been canceled. It was called The Biggest Loser. What an apt name. Um, so they put these, these uh, morbidly obese people through a grueling regime of exercise and fasting uh, and stimulants such as caffeine and all kinds of other you know drugs that, in order to, for them to, to lose the weight. And uh, some of them did, right? A lot of them didn't. They just fell. It was too much stress and they dropped out. Some of them did. However, Without a single exception, every single one of these people that, that won the contest, quote unquote, and then went back to their normal life, within six months, they were not only back at their original weight, they overshot it. And by the way, they stayed on a calorically restricted diet. So clearly, it's not only the calories in that matters, it's the calories out that matter, right? And getting calories out through a stress mechanism, such as 
exercise or fasting, you know, uh, that's the first tool that we use, but it turns out we pay a very heavy price for it. Why? Well, if cortisol upregulates its own synthesis, right, peripherally, and we're stressing ourselves, eventually we're going to end up with higher cortisol than we started with. And cortisol has a very well-known obesogenic effect, even in uh, admitted by, by mainstream clinical medicine. Uh, if you get a medrol pack, which is a very common, like a uh, oral uh, uh, glucocorticoid used for minor inflammation and aches like a ear infection and whatnot, um, they give you a medrol pack, which is, I think, six tablets of basically uh, 20 to 50 milligrams of uh, six methylene cortisol, I think is, is basically the thing. So it's basically a glucocorticoid. The side, if you look at the side effect brochure, it basically says this should not be used long-term. Anything more than a month requires special approval by, by endocrinologists. Why? Well, it dramatically increases your risk of endocrine disorders, including type 2 diabetes, insulin resistance, you know, cardiovascular disease, all, the, all of these things. So we know that cortisol causes these things, right? But if we are overstressing ourselves in order to lose that those excess electrons, we're creating the machinery to produce even more cortisol. And cortisol is known to cause the very thing that we're using now cortisol to, to combat, which is the obesity. Uh, you know, we're stressing ourselves, which means we're raising our cortisol to lose this extra these extra calories. But in the process, we're lowering our metabolism further. And now with cortisol overproducing itself, it blocks the insulin receptor, makes you insulin resistant. It increases the activity of fatty acid synthase, so it's going to make you synthesize even more fat. And of course, it shreds muscle. Really terrible outcome because it's muscle mass that determines, and it's the ratio of muscle mass to fat mass that really determines your long-term health and your basic, your basal metabolic rate, your resting metabolic rate. Uh, and if you're destroying your muscle mass while simultaneously increasing the fat, it doesn't matter if you lose all the fat and muscle. At the end of the day, if you if you stop, then you have a much lower after you've exercised and fasted for let's say two three months. Yes, you lost all of the maybe all of the excess weight, but now you have almost no muscle. Uh, and by the way, you preferentially lose muscle to fat in a, in a ratio of about three to one because muscle is much easier to break down than fat is. Fatty tissue is not very well innervated and not very well supplied with blood. So in order for fat breakdown to occur, you need a sufficient supply of the catecholamines such as adrenaline. Uh, muscle is very well innervated and very well blood supplied, which means the cortisol, which breaks down muscle, is going to do its job very well, but not so much for the, for the fatty for the fatty tissue. So even when, while you're fasting and exercising, you're losing predominantly muscle. In other words, you're killing your basal metabolic rate. And let's say you manage to lose all of that fat and a muscle as well. And then you eventually end up as a very skinny person with an extremely low basal metabolic rate. Now, if you try if you attempt to go to even half of the calories that you were eating before, you will still regain all of that weight simply because now your basal metabolic rate has been shot. And you're, you know, extremely hypometabolic. I would say, I don't know if they did tests for these, uh, for the biggest loser show. I think they did. They basically said that they were clinically hypothyroid towards the end of this exercise. So, so basically what happens is when you're stressing yourself is that, you, yes, you, you will be burning more calories, but at the expense of causing the fat producing machinery to increase, right? You're also losing your muscle mass. And then at the end, you're going to regain all of it, but not the muscle. Because the, the production of muscle tissue depends on muscle protein synthesis, which depends on metabolic rate. And now you don't have that. So, so when you regain your weight, you will regain mostly fat. And you'll be much worse than you started before, because presumably, at least before, you had some muscle mass to, start, to, you know, to kind of keep you metabolically active. Now everything that you gain back is fat. So what happens, another thing that cortisol does, it, it blocks several of the enzymes in this pathway for the electrons from food to oxygen. So cortisol directly inhibits your oxidative phosphorylation metabolism, 
uh, which means that there's going to be a buildup of electrons at one or more of these steps. We can think of it as like a, a bus line from start to finish, right? And the bus, let's say, has, has 10 stops. Each bus is, a, is an electron. So the electron has to pass through these 10 stops, and the final stop is where it mixes oxygen and creates water. Um, uh, because the electrons that we get from food, they're transported in the body in the form of hydrogen ions. So hydrogen eventually has to meet with oxygen and, and, and create water. If cortisol is blocking the movement of these hydrogen ions across one or more of these, let's say 10 steps, I think there's more, more than 10, then, then there's going to be a buildup. These buses that are you know, kind of building up at, at some of, one or more of these stops. But what happens to these buses, to these electrons? Well, two options really. One, the less, less problematic one, but still problematic in the long term, is using them to synthesize fat. So this mass that you're getting from food, this energy that you're getting from food has to go somewhere. The body cannot simply expel these electrons freely into the air. Once they're inside of you, something has to happen to them. And the ideal thing is meet with oxygen, which creates water, which you then excrete. Now, if that doesn't happen, if there's a blockage somewhere, then the body says, okay, I have a buildup of electrons. I'm going to start synthesizing some fat. But that process, it's, it's not very efficient and it's, it's slow. Uh, and it also consumes energy. Fatty acid synthase consumes ATP, which would be low if your metabolic rate is already low. So that pathway very quickly starts getting overwhelmed as well. And really the only thing that remains is kind of like, a, I wouldn't even call it an option. It's the only thing that can happen phys physically is that these electrons that, that are building up are, are, going to, are going to start leaking around the cell from the mitochondria and combining with molecular oxygen to create the reactive oxygen species. So in other words, the buildup of electron, in other words, a reductive state is what creates reactive oxygen species. And uh, I think it, uh, it's an unfortunate name because a lot of people, when they hear about reactive oxygen species, they think it's because they're oxidizing too much. No, it's the exact opposite. It's because you're not oxidizing. In other words, you're not combining efficiently oxygen with these electrons that you're getting from food. That's when you get the reactive oxygen species, which the electrons created by attacking the molecular oxygen and creating these highly reactive molecules, which then can wreak havoc not just uh, on the cell structure, but even genomically. Several of them are, are known mutagens and carcinogens. 4-hydroxynonenal is one of the peroxidative byproducts of polyunsaturated fat, and I think the hydroxyurotic radical. And that is now known to be a mutagen and carcinogen. Myelondialdehyde, probably the most widely distributed and the most common uh, PUFA peroxidation byproduct, is also a known carcinogen. So basically, you by being in a state of excess reduction, in other words, not processing the electrons properly, you create the reactive oxygen species, which then set up the field for creating virtually any disease that, that we know, any chronic disease. I mean, recently study came out said that COVID-19 is nothing but a cytokine storm triggered by excess, by a, a really a drastic accumulation of reactive oxygen species. So there you go, a very serious you know situation with a pandemic about it, and then driven by reactive oxygen species, in other words, reductive state. Uh, very well known that the actual reactive oxygen species are uh, uh, driving diabetes, obesity, heart disease, cancer. All of the you 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 come up with a disease and put it in Google and then followed by ROS. You're gonna go, you're gonna get a, a plethora of studies describing the, pet, the 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 driving role of reactive oxygen species in that specific disease. And how do we get there? Simply by not ox, uh, efficiently oxidizing the food that we ingest. And there are many things that inhibit this oxidation. Uh, it just so happens that the polyunsaturated fats are not only precursors to the inflammatory mediators, not only precursors to the peroxidating products, which are mutagens and carcinogens, but by oxidizing fat, specifically polyunsaturated fats, uh, they are inhibiting one of the crucial steps 
of oxidative phosphorylation is called electron transport chain uh, complex two. Uh, and basically, once you, you have a block in these two steps that I mentioned, in, this, in the 10 steps that I mentioned, it doesn't matter if it's one or like every single one, is only one block is sufficient to start having a buildup of electrons, then you start getting a buildup of electrons. And oxidizing predominantly fat uh, creates a, a bottleneck at ATC electron transport chain complex two. And then you start getting a buildup of electrons. And, you, and if the buildup is really bad, not only you get reactive oxygen species, you, got, you start having electron transport chain flow in reverse. So both the electron transport chain and even the Krebs cycle can flow in reverse. And that is something we've, we've seen so far in every single cancer type that we've managed to look at metabolically. They actually, they don't oxidize the nutrients that we give them. They use the nutrients to synthesize more machinery, which, which is what the cancer cells need to divide and grow. Um, they're, they're almost always hypoxic, even in the presence of sufficient oxygen, the infamous Warburg, so-called Warburg effect. And now there's, a, uh, I would say, a, a field of, of oncology, which is starting to think of cancer as a nothing but a metabolic disease driven by one or more blocks somewhere in, the, in, the, in, the, in this pathway of electrons to oxygen. Uh, and there are attempts being made to identify those blocks and remedy them. Uh, there's already a, 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 a proposal to, tr to try to treat cancer with high doses of, of coenzyme Q10, which is the crucial cofactor for electron transport chain two. Uh, we'll see how this goes, but it was already identified as a potential roadblock. And you know, there's a, a clinical study, I think, being uh, uh, done at uh, Anderson Cancer Center in Texas. Um, and I think they're going to be administering high doses of coenzyme Q10, 1,200 to 2,400 milligrams daily to see if they can re re remove that block. There are several studies with other quinones, coenzyme Q10 being, being a quinone, such as methylene blue um, or vitamin K. Oh, by the way, the tetracycline antibiotics, not many people think of them as quinones, but they are. In fact, their structure is a quinone molecule. So there are two electron acceptors, one, two. Um, and um, there are several studies with doxycycline, one of the tetracycline antibiotics, uh, with, in humans for breast cancer. A recent study demonstrated that 200 milligrams of doxycycline, which is a type of quinone, daily fully arrested the progression of triple negative breast cancer, which is considered the hardest to treat because it does not respond to hormonal therapy. Um, so there's a lot of evidence that this reductive state uh, is behind uh, is behind many diseases. And even though the reactive oxygen species get the biggest blame, it's not only them. In order for us to get to them, what precedes that is the state of building up of electrons. And that buildup of electrons can lead to buildup of fatty acids, right? Which is, which is never good, right? We don't want fatty tissue to build up. We know it's metabolically active. We know it stimulates cancer growth. We know it synthesizes estrogen more efficient than other type of tissue. Uh, so it's really the whole state of in inefficient uh, pairing of these electrons with oxygen, which is behind, seems, behind every chronic disease that we know. Yeah, it's it's the body has a cruel way of letting us know that we're not doing things properly by, by upregulating or downregulating different um, enzyme systems. Uh, I guess it comes down to, Georgie, now that we hear about that and sort of the sky is falling, and I think environmentally between our our, our hydrogenated oils and our seed oils and our PUFAs and our high fructose corn syrup and endocrine disruptors and so forth and so on, um, not even getting into the iron oxidation and the bioavailability yeah. of copper. Um, what, do we, what do we do about this in terms of, okay, what other biomarkers? I think that's a good 
introduction to the anabolic effect of proteins and being anti-catabolic, mm -hmm. um, not having excess amounts of lipolysis demands by having such a decrease in intake and an increase in output, which we you already just so um, descriptively explained how that feeds forward and creates more problems than it's helping. Um, but with that being said, being in this excessive state of reduction, needing oxidants to accept those re, re, you know, hydrogens, um, what biomarkers that can give us some insight, dietary approaches, what, what do we do about all of this now? I mean, some of the, uh, I guess the best biomarker, at least the most widely known in, in the clinical, in the research literature is the NAD plus to the NADH ratio. But unfortunately, when you when you measure it in blood, it's not always indicative, which is another great example of why blood tests is, are not always reliable. In fact, rarely so, or at least they mislead you. They give you a picture that does not necessarily represent what's going on inside the cell. It's not that they're wrong. It's that they're useful for a specific purpose. But for some reason, because I guess, because we haven't had that many of the other tests developed, we've come to over-rely on blood tests and try to use them for something that they're really not supposed to, which is show you what's going on inside of the cell. So inside of the cell, you have two types of NAD plus to the NADH ratios. One is in the cytosol, which is outside of the mitochondria. And the second one is in, in inside of the mitochondria. And it's really the mitochondrial NAD plus to the NADH ratio, which gives you an indication of your redox status. Because in the cytosol, um, NADH can get oxidized back into NAD plus very effectively, but at a tremendous cost. And so in a cancer cell, where the oxidative phosphorylation is blocked, which means the mitochondrial part, where basically you oxidize in the Krebs cycle and in the electrotransport chain, the only thing that remains functional is glycolysis. So the final output product of glycolysis is something called pyruvate. But during glycolysis, basically, the cell uh, accumulated NADH by using NAD+, because NAD+, is the oxidizing molecule, and extracting the electrons from food, specifically from glucose, uh, you produce NADH. Um, so when it, there's a buildup of NADH, which means also a drop of NAD+, the cell desperately needs back its NAD+. Normally in a healthy cell, that would happen in the, in the oxidative phosphorylation part, during which NADH gets oxidized back into NAD+. If that portion is not working, then now the cell has a, there's a goal, buildup of electrons, NADH buildup. What does the cell do? The cell knows very well it's very dangerous, and it actually cannot continue to function. Even glycolysis cannot function without a sufficient supply of NAD+. So the cell says, okay, if you're not mitochondria, if you're not going to give me back my NAD+, and I'm giving you NADH, you don't want to take it, and if you're not going to give me back NAD+, I'm going to synthesize it myself. What can I do? Well, my final output product of glycolysis is pyruvate. Pyruvate is an oxidizing molecule. It can accept one electron, and in the process, it becomes lactate. So I'm going to use pyruvate in lieu of oxygen, really a very inefficient, it can work very well, but with a tremendous cost. And I'm going to reoxidize NADH back into NAD+, using pyruvate as the oxidant, but then in the process, I'm going to produce a lot of lactate. And that's known as the Warburg effect, also known as aerobic glycolysis. So oxygen is there, but for whatever reason, the mitochondria is not working and the cell is using pyruvate as the oxidant instead of oxygen, and it's producing a lot of lactate. And for a long time, lactate was thought of as just this benign characteristic of cancer uh, that is just, you know, it can be used to diagnose cancer, right? Uh, but aside from, you know, being a metabolite, an oncometabolite, it wasn't really thought to contribute to cancer itself. Not anymore. 
Lactate has been known for a long time to be the most potent endogenous driver of angiogenesis. So whenever you have a tissue injury, you're going to have an accumulation of lactate. And this was thought to be simply a result of the temporary injury that's happening in that, in that area there. It's not only that, it turns out that the cells are actually increasing their production of lactate in order to stimulate the formation of blood vessels, which will stimulate the wound healing. The same process is, is overexpressed in cancer. And in fact, one of the most uh, successful drugs, I think it's been on the market since the 1960s, is called Avastin, is an angiogenesis inhibitor. It was developed for breast cancer, but now it's been given for all kinds of cancers where angiogenesis is thought to contribute to, the, to at least the primary tumor growth. And lactate, the overproduction of lactate, is a very reliable stimulant. Several recent studies demonstrated that if you inject lactate into tumor-bearing animals, you drastically increase their growth of tumors uh, without doing any, without any other change into the environment or food or even treatment. So we know that overproduction of lactate is not a good thing, but that's what happens when you basically have a, you know a missing oxidative phosphorylation and and you know using using pyruvate as as an oxidant. But what this mean, also means is that cancer cells have a very high NAD plus to the NADH ratio in the cytosol, but very low NAD plus to the NADH ratio in the mitochondria. Now, short of doing a biopsy, and even then it'll be very difficult because you have to get a, an intact cell. You have to somehow measure the redox state in the cytosol, and you have to measure the redox state in the mitochondria. Very, very difficult. You require very tiny little probes, very expensive tests. So not really uh, feasible for most people. Definitely should not be testing NAD plus to the NADH ratio in the blood because it may even be very high in cancer patients because they are overproducing NAD plus, but at the expense of lactate. A better ratio is the pyruvate to the lactate ratio. Um, and that basically, because pyruvate is an oxidant, lactate is a reductant, they have a direct relationship to NAD plus to NADH. They participating in, into the, in, and it's a bidirectional pathway too though. Um, so you can measure that in the blood, and that's usually a pretty good indicator of your redox status inside of the cell because any excess pyruvate or lactate in the cell cannot process directly, gets exported outside of the cell for usage by other tissues. Um, so, and since lactate, you know, we know that lactate is overproduced in cancer cells. Um, if you have a low pyruvate to lactate ratio, ratio uh, that is definitely, a, a, you know, a good indicator of the redox status and beyond a certain level. In other words, if that ratio drops too low, it's probably a good, a good biomarker for cancer. Unfortunately, not very specific because this, this test has been done. And the pyruvate to lactate ratio is also low in people with severe uncontrolled diabetes, uh, people with severe skin burns, uh, people with uh, trauma, like when they get to the ER, uh, people with severe infectious disease. So, for example, the people with COVID-19 that end up in a really poor state, even died when they tested their blood. They had basically very high levels of something called C-reactive protein, which is a very good uh, biomarker of inflammation, and also very low ratio of pyruvate to lactate. So not very specific for a specific for a disease, but definitely tell you that something is this metabolically very, very wrong, especially if you test it over a couple of days and, and this ratio does not improve. Another decent, another good indicator could be the acetoacetate to beta-hydroxybutyrate. Uh, both of these are considered ketones, even though one of them is not. Ironically, beta-hydroxybutyrate, if you go online and read literature, it says, oh, yes, this is a ketone overproduced in diabetes. No, it's the reduced form of acetoacetate, which is the actual ketone. And the acetoacetate to beta-hydroxybutyrate is another pair of oxidant versus, uh, versus reductant that is a very good indication of your redox status. Another one would be the oxidized to the reduced form of glutathione. 
GSSG, which is the disulfide form of glutathione. And then you have GSH, which is the sulfhydro form of glutathione, the reduced form. That is also a very good redox biomarker. So you don't have to do all of these, but one or more of these, when, when, you, when you do them together, gives a pretty good indication of, of basically, you know, where you stand on in terms of redox status. Some of the steroids actually have a very similar relationship. Cortisol, which is the reduced form, the alcohol, and cortisol, which is the ketone, it's also a very good indicator of the redox status because that, that enzyme that reduces cortisone into cortisol also uses NADH as, a, as, a, as an input, as an enzyme. So cortisol to cortisone, I'm sorry, cortisone to cortisol will be equivalent to pyruvate to lactate ratio. So many different ratios like that, um, as long as you're taking a pair that, that has a direct one-step relationship and it consumes or, or it consumes or produces either NAD plus or NADH as part of the, as part of the reaction. That's awesome. So, I mean, and coupled with what we talked about earlier, looking at a Dutch test, looking at a blood test, looking at a at a, a potentially a hair test to get an idea on exactly what's happening. Just to summarize, the the redox state we're looking at is if we're in this excessive state of reduction, our hydrogens aren't getting to the end terminal to make energy. Um, potentially because we have too much fat and too much cortisol dumping glucose into the bloodstream or just glucose or whatever it is. Um, and that's causing these excessive state of reductance or re re uh, excessive state of reduction, yes. causing your, um, your 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 oxidants to have to accept those. And then as a result, your redox status would show um, a very low relationship between the the oxidant and the reductant because the inter it's all intermediate oxidant. Perut, you can think of perut as an intermediate oxidant. Intermediate you don't want to use it. You want right. oxygen, right? But right. If, if you can use oxygen, one of the others will be used because there's nothing else the cell can use. Right. Exactly. Interesting stuff. So um, I guess the the next question to me to you is is that a lot of people will again do these intermittent fasts. And uh, and the concern is, like you said, it turns over um, the bacteria, which creates endotoxins, which ultimately creates more cortisol, which then now creates the challenge of the bioenergetics and potentially this excessive state of reduction uh, and being uh, aware of getting the same benefit out of a charcoal or a binder that would bind up those endotoxins, which is typically what's driving that cortisol aging challenge in the first place is this inflammatory cascade in this case endotoxins in the gi tract but in other cases these mediators mediaries that compete with each other and can't produce energy effectively and then end up having exhaust coming out of the tailpipe what i wanted to ask you was the relationship with serotonin um, because I don't think a lot of people understand that. And if you couple that with the SSRIs that create that to be around longer, how does the serotonin fit into all of this, Georgie, especially with cortisol and energetics and so forth? That's a great question. And uh, I've talked to several psychiatrists about this. They, they weren't aware of the relationship between serotonin and cortisol. Serotonin is the most potent central controller of cortisol production because serotonin through the 5-HT2C receptor controls the release of ACTH. So basically you can create Cushing syndrome if you inject the sufficiently high amounts of serotonin into an organism because serotonin will stimulate the synthesis and the release of cortisol. Conversely, um, some of the antidepressant drugs that are on market, specifically the drug Prozac, even though it's a necessary drug, and it, it shows, uh, I would say, antidepressant effects slightly better than placebo. 
the largest trial so far, and the, the meta-analysis show that it's not very effective, but the, the way it does work, it does work in some cases. Unbeknownst to many people, Prozac is actually a 5-HT2C antagonist. And 5-HT2C antagonist, and in general, non-selective serotonin antagonists have been used off-label to treat Cushing syndrome and Cushing disease, the drug cyproheptadine, some of the older ergot derivatives such as bromocryptine, cabergoline, metergoline, lyceride, um, nisergoline. All of these have several case studies showing that they can actually treat Cushing syndrome. And, and the explanation so far has been that they all of the ones that do are antagonists of the, at the 5-HT2C receptor. However, if aside from the five, so if if you have serotonin activating all of these receptors, serotonin will always raise cortisol. So when you take an SSRI drug, the ones that do work are invariably an antagon antagonist or on at one or more of the serotonin receptors, usually 5-HT2C. And there's very good reason for that. We know that the cortisol is either upregulated in depression or the people with clinical depression don't respond to cortisol with sufficient sensitivity. In other words, the infamous dexamethasone suppression test, which is used for diagnosing um, Cushing syndrome or Cushing disease or ectopic Cushing, uh, which means that if they give you a synthetic glucocorticoid, your endogenous production of cortisol should decline because cortisol is, the, the synthetic one is acting at the same glucocorticoid receptors and the negative mechanism, which is the central negative feedback mechanism, should tell your body to basically say, hey, I have plenty of cortisol, even though it's the synthetic one, uh, stop producing the endogenous one because I don't want too much, right? Well, in people with depression or Cushing syndrome or Cushing disease, this feedback mechanism is missing. So in other words, people with clinical depression, the more severe the depression, the less responsive they are to, to dexamethasone. In fact, the dexamethasone suppression test is now suggested uh, as replacing the entire Bex depression scale. I think it's called basically it's a diagnosing checklist. And they're saying, how do we know that you as a patient, when we're giving you the antidepressant, how do we know that you responded? Well, the only tool that psychiatry has so far is very subjective because it relies on, on the patient's response to a specific checklist. Some patients lie. Other patients don't want to admit that they're not feeling better, right? Uh, some patients are ashamed to admit. So how do we objectively know that the drug that we're giving is working? And several studies have proposed that the, rest the restoration of the response to the dexamethasone suppression test is a very reliable predictor that you're coming out of the depression. So if we're giving you an antidepressant, and, and you start responding to the to the maxim, to the max, to the dexamethasone suppression test. That means that your your you know, sensitivity to glucocorticoids is increasing, which means you're probably coming out of the depression. And a great great uh, corroboration of the fact that cortisol causes depression uh, is a recent clinical study with the uh, uh, glucocorticoid antagonist RU486. It induced rapid and complete remission of treatment resistant depression in just 48 hours. So a very good indication there that cortisol is involved directly in the in the cause of factors of depression. So even if you even if even if you assume that the serotonin is the happy hormone, which is a very tenable proposition, if serotonin is the most potent activator of cortisol release, cannot possibly be good for depression because we know that cortisol can cause depression, and conversely, blocking cortisol can relieve it and even cure it. Um, so 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 these SSRI drugs that that are, that are being that are in circulation right now. Um, uh, they're creating this, this state of, of basically chronic peripheral, at the very least, serotonin excess. Um, and uh, I think at this point, most of the doctors that I talk to, they agree that peripheral serotonin is not a good thing. Uh, several clinical trials with uh, peripheral tryptophan hydroxylase inhibitors, which is the, the enzyme that synthesizes serotonin. There are two types, type 2 and type 1. One synthesizes serotonin in the brain, the other one peripherally. 
So several clinical trials with inhibitors of that enzyme peripherally, but not centrally, not in the brain, for treatment of obesity, depression, diabetes, and all these different conditions. So to me, that's an admission that, that we don't want serotonin to be elevated, at least peripherally, right? But then there's other uh, 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 pieces of evidence showing that administering serotonin antagonists that are centrally active, in other they can cro cross the blood-brain barrier, also have a very rapid antidepressant effect. So serotonin is not a cure for depression. In, the, it, in fact, it may very well be the cause. It, it's definitely indirectly a cause through cortisol, but also directly itself because these serotonin antagonists that were administered, several of them were very specific. They acted only one subreceptor and it was not 5-HT2C. 5-HT1D, I think is a very potent and rapidly active uh, antidepressant if you block that receptor. 5-HT7, recent study that I found, demonstrated that if you administer an SSRI, it causes depression and anxiety, and they, they, did, they did administer Prozac. But if you administer a very highly selective 5-HT7 antagonist, rapid relief of depression within 24 hours. So serotonin is is not what what we've been what we've been hearing over the last twenty or thirty or even forty years. In fact, if you go further back in time to, to the nineteen sixties and even uh, earlier, you will see that serotonin had a very bad reputation. Um, and the, this reputation came from studies on people with carcinoid tumors, uh, which are tumors usually of the gastrointestinal tract. Some of them are neuroendocrine. Uh, people with so-called MENS1 and MENS2 type uh, diseases, their tumors usually produce a lot of serotonin. And even though the serotonin is produced uh, peripherally, and we've been told serotonin cannot cross the blood-brain barrier, they had uh, strikingly similar symptoms to serotonin excess, which central symptoms such as psychosis, depression, uh, change of personality, delirium, uh, very common uh, signs slash symptoms of serotonin syndrome. Uh, which is what you can get if you take an SRI drug. And back in the day, it was known that you don't want serotonin to be elevated for too long uh, because these people with a carcinoid tumor, they didn't die from the tumor itself. It's a not very metastatic tumor, but because of the massive disseminated fibrosis that occurred as a result of this elevated peripheral serotonin. When you take an SRI drug, you're effectively mimicking that condition. Maybe not to the point where you're going to have these symptoms every day, but you're definitely going to be elevating extracellular serotonin and it's at this point, I think, uh, you know, even even the current state of medicine admits that a peripheral serotonin, elevated peripheral serotonin, it's not a good thing. It can at the very least, it can cause fibrosis. Um, at worst, it can cause many of these chronic conditions that uh, we've been blaming on eating too much and moving too little. Um, and then how does serotonin does this? Well, serotonin is one of the master regulators of metabolism. So it makes perfect sense. You have high serotonin, that means low metabolic rate. So if you inhibit the sense of serotonin or block its effects of the receptor, it's perfectly, uh, not, uh, I should say, uh, acceptable. It's plausible that this should lead to loss of, uh, of fat mass, loss of excess weight, right? Reversal of diabetes, reversal of hypertension. In fact, one of the first uh, successful clinical drugs for for uh, hypertension. I think it only got approved in one or two countries. It's called ketanserin, and ketanserin is a 5-HT2 serotonin antagonist. It has no other known effect. No effect on the histamine system, no effect on the dopamine system, purely serotonin antagonist, very rapid anti-hypertensive effects. So conversely, we can say that hypertension is probably a reliable sign of high serotonin, which ultimately really leads to low metabolism, and everything that that entails, which is uh, which part of the body exactly will break, we don't know. But we do know that if you have high reductive state, 
which is uh, driven by a lot of these mediators such as cortisol, serotonin, histamine, estrogen, etc. You're going to end up with a failure in one or more of the tissues and organs because of that uh, excess amount of electrons that are not being paired up. Yeah, that's amazing with the serotonin and the, the inhibitors and the relationship to ACTH and now being used to displace the the test to determine, you know, the Cushing syndrome is, yep. is amazing. That, that's I'll have to unpack that, Georgie, and, and go through it myself and, and get a little more insight from there. Um, and then just switching gears, which is completely a left uh, field question, but I, I wanted to ask you, so I didn't ask you last time, what what is the Ray P. Georgie Dinkoff insight with the, because right now we're talking about the the making of energy right bioenergetics right. Right. and we combine the food we eat and the air we breathe and i was always focusing on the air we breathe side of things mm -hmm. from the standpoint of uh hematopoiesis okay. replacing 2.5 million red blood cells per second recycling of iron with the reticuloendothelial mm -hmm. system the availability of of copper ceruloplasm um, looking at anemias as not iron deficiency, but as an anemia of chronic inflammation. Yep, yep, and yep. then you throw into my world the whole food side of it and the whole um, excessive state of reduction uh, and how getting that uh, the body to use the food effectively and, and get to the end terminal and not have to decide between too much fat, too much cortisol, and being able to get that through to the other side. But really, I haven't talked to you about the hematopoietic side and, and the Ray Pete, Georgie Dinkoff insight with bioavailable copper, which I know cortisol and the electron transport chain and even complex four and vitamin A and so forth, things can break down there too, not just from the oh, food yeah. side of things, but from the, from the iron red blood cell side of things. So I guess, you know, in your, your, your way, explain to me what, how, copper and iron and just making of red blood cells and recycling and being able to keep up with that demand fits in with all of this. All depends on the metabolic rate. If you're hypothyroid, in all likelihood, you're going to have low levels of ferritin and transferrin. And without those, basically any iron that you intake through the food is going to be very, very dangerous. Yeah, it, it going to float around probably as like a free iron. And in that state, it combine it attacks very easily the polyunsaturated fats in your tissues, and it creates something very nasty known as lipofusking, also known as the aging pigment. And just like lactate, the lipofusking for a long time was considered a, a benign, kind of like a side effect of aging, didn't really cause any problems, not so. Turns out that it's a very potent mitochondrial inhibitor and structurally damages the mitochondria. And several studies, it, there was a great interest in it in, back in the 70s, where basically they were trying to reverse the accumulation of lipofuscin in the cell and demonstrated that if you can do that, then the cell reverses its metabolic phenotype to a young cell, uh, even though if the cell may already be senescent, it stopped dividing, basically it's waiting to die. But if you remove the lipofuscin from the cell, the cell springs, springs up back to life. Um, so, so, so basically the supplementation of iron should be uh, done very carefully. And it should be uh, also uh, done after checking for uh, thyroid and liver function, because if any of these is not working properly, you will not be producing the iron carrying proteins and you're going to be doing a lot of damage depending on how much iron you take. Copper is a very important metal, two main reasons. One is the crucial component of cytochrome uh, C oxidase, which is complex four. Um, and basically it's shown, it, 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 multiple studies have shown that with time, if you look at our tissues, no matter which tissue you look at with aging, there is an increase in the iron to copper ratio. So, so basically our mitochondria loses copper with aging, 
and I think it tends to lose copper more easily than it does iron. So it's not that we accumulate iron, it's that the ratio of iron to copper, just like this, the cortisol to DHEA, is heavily shifted in favor of iron, and iron uh, in high amounts can have these perox per peroxidative effects, let's not call it peroxidant, peroxidative effects, and also can, can suppress the final portion, portion of the oxidative phosphorylation, which is the cytochrome C oxidase. Um, and copper is also a cofactor for the monoamine oxidase enzymes, uh, which break down both serotonin and dopamine, but I think monoamine oxidase A, type A, which preferentially breaks down serotonin, is much more dependent on copper than type B. And recent studies have showed that one of the longest living mammal species relative to its size, which is the naked mole rat, basically has a, the reason it doesn't age and it never gets cancer, never gets any of the diseases that we humans do, even though it's brethren, the normal rats, uh, actually dying of the exact same disease that humans do with aging. They have the exact same increase relative of cancer, heart disease, and everything else. That's why it's such a good model of human chronic conditions. The naked mole rat does not get any of these and actually lives to the age of almost 40 years, 4-0, while it's a regular <laughs> house rat variety, lives to about two to three. Um, so not only they have an extreme lifespan, they also have an extreme health span. They never get sick, neither from infectious disease nor chronic disease. And usually, from what I understand, uh, um, you know, when they die in the burrow, they live on the ground. Uh, in colon, is similar to bees. Uh, usually when they die, it's usually from either infection or an attack from a predator or basically the colony, you know, basically uh, doesn't have enough food and resorted to cannibalism. So it's like an external event. It was not because the rat basically, you know, got sick chronically or aged. Something else caused the rat to die. So they could be living to a much higher, to much, to even even much longer, maybe even matching our lifespan for all we know, uh, because the only the knowledge that we have from them is usually in captivity, uh, but in wild, they're not know how long they live. So we know it's at least for up to 40 years. So it was found recently that the reason, one of the reasons they live so, so, so fast is that basically they have a very high metabolic rate. And the reason they were able to maintain their high metabolic rate was their very efficient breakdown of serotonin through monoamine oxidase type A. In other words, a great example that serotonin is a negative regulator of metabolism. And by increasing its breakdown, you're drastically upregulating your metabolic rate and basically your, your, which also results in probably that's the main reason for their very long lifespan. But in order for monoamine oxidase type A to work properly, you need sufficient amounts of copper. Yeah, copper right. dependent. Yeah. And yeah. vitamin B2, which is the other one. Uh, which reminds me of uh, one of the reasons why vitamin B2 is now used off-label for migraines is because it's a cofactor for monoamine oxidase type A, it's a very efficient uh, uh, destructor, sort of called, uh, contributes to the degradation of serotonin. And one of the earliest drugs on the market for migraine were serotonin antagonists, were the ergot drugs, specifically the drug called methysergide. Uh, which is an ergot derivative similar to LSD and bromocryptine, is to this day still approved by the FDA for the treatment of migraines. And it's an anti-serotonin an anti drug. So you want to live long, you want to be healthy, you have to break down serotonin properly. And for that, copper specifically, which we tend to lose with age, and it's not as easily replenishable as vitamin B2. Vitamin B2, it seems that we retain our ability to absorb it from the GI tract and distribute it to tissues no matter how old we are. There is a bit of a problem with the conversion of the precursor, which most, most people take riboflavin hydrochloride, and then it has to be converted to something called riboflavin 5-phosphate inside of the cell because that's the active form. There is some evidence that the conversion of the riboflavin, the precursor to the active one, declines with aging, but you can solve that by either administering the active version or injecting it. Um, you know, th There are ways to circumvent that. Injecting copper or eating more copper does not necessarily work very well. 
uh, and it's been shown that in hypothyroid people, uh, eating most of these, they call them trace metals or trace metals, such as iron and copper and zinc and uh, and manganese can do more damage than, than good because they lack the machinery to basically transport it and keep it bound um, in, 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 a, in a form that's, that's usable by the protein machinery inside of the cell. Um, so for a person, it's very common to see low ferritin in a hypothyroid person and a typical, uh, you know, pro procedure in this diagnosis, they test ferritin, they test iron saturation, they test serum iron and transferrin, right? But if ferritin is low, this is almost universally accepted as low iron. So doctors give iron supplements. That does not usually, I should say usually, can very often do more damage than good because if that person cannot ramp up their production of ferritin, which depends on energy, which depends on metabolic rate, right? Then they're going to be in trouble because now that iron is unusable, it's, it's a heavy metal, reactive metal that is floating around in the blood and can cause a lot more damage than good. So our utilization of the metals depends on our metabolic rate. Uh, and we should, when we ingest in these metals, we should, with increasing age, be giving more uh, attention to copper than iron. Um, one other, another indication that iron is not very beneficial is that so, uh, recent studies have demonstrated that iron chelators, such as the drug desferoxamine, which is used clinically to chelate iron, are very effective against 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 wide variety of tumors, uh, both hematological, especially hematological but also solid tumors as well. So uh, uh, it, another demonstration that iron is very heavily involved in the in the cancer metabolism. And, and that's, that's to be expected because like I said, iron in excess can suppress cytochrome, cytochrome C oxidase, but it can also create a lot of these peroxidation products that themselves are carcinogenic. And uh, by creating also lipofosking, which inhibits mitochondrial function, actually can damage it structurally too. And I think in high enough amounts, iron also can damage the enzyme pyruvate dehydrogenase, which is the rate limiting step for oxidizing glucose. Um, so yeah, I would not supplement with iron unless the person has tested all of the iron biomarkers and I see low iron saturation, low ferritin, and high transferrin. Only in this situation would I consider supplementing iron and even then, only after checking the thyroid and liver, make sure that base, because these two determine whether you're going to be producing the ferritin, which is currently low. Just just throwing ironite there and iron at the, at the patient and hoping that they'll ramp up their production of ferritin um, is, is, is not, is not uh, warranted, uh, uh, you know, unless you already check thyroid and liver function. Yeah, no, that's awesome information. I'll have to go back and listen to it again. I do a lot of testing on those different markers. And I find it interesting that, like you said, if it's a knee-jerk reaction, Georgie, that if your ferritin is low, you must be iron deficient. Yeah. Let's just pour more oil on the fire when 70% of your iron is in your hemoglobin and they're not looking at hemoglobin. And the majority of the time, from what I see on functional ranges for males, 13.5, for male females, 12 0.5, they're above that range. And I'll ask them, well, what did your doctor say about having a high hemoglobin, even though your ferritin is low and wanting to give you iron that 70% of which is in your hemoglobin, and that's not low. So yeah. it's, it's, you know, I guess it's like a boat turning in the ocean, it takes time to, to come in, but your information is amazing. And um, I want to offer you on the air to kind of keep you accountable, if you're willing. Um, I, I do a lot of genomic test interpretations. And what I'd love to do is do one complimentary for you where you send me any data. If you have, do you have a 23andMe or Ancestry test? No, no. Have you never done? No. I'll give you, I'll send one to you if you're willing. You can use a different name. We don't use 23andMe and we don't use Ancestry and they don't allow 
uh, sharing of your information because a lot of our population obviously doesn't want their information out there. So we keep it completely confidential and then get your insight with how we go about looking at these genomic perfect storms, if you will, in terms of here's the blueprint, here's where you may have weak links in your chain. So when the bioenergetics break down, when you're not combining the food you eat because of an excessive state of reduction and you're not combining the air you breathe because of iron dysregulation and mineral imbalances, you're producing ROSs and you're creating all of these um, these mast cells, inflammatory mediators, histamines, HPA axis dysfunction, everything we're talking about, but we get a better understanding on where those weak links in the train may break. So why you may have more of a, a cognitive decline versus why this person will have more autoimmunities or GI yeah. discomforts, or this person has hormones. I'd love to be able to do that for you, Georgie, if, you, if you'd be willing to do that. I'll, I'll think about it. One thing I wanted to mention about EPO, a lot of people supplementing iron and even getting EPO injections because they want to increase oxygen delivery to tissues, right? In fact, I think EPO is a doping, banned doping agent in sports. The thing is, no matter how much oxygen you manage to bind to hemoglobin, its release into the tissues depends on how much carbon dioxide that tissue produces. Right. Uh, it's called it's called the Bohr effect. So in a state of low metabolism, which means low oxidative phosphorylation, since most of the, actually all of the CO2 is produced in the mitochondria, you can get pumped full of EPO, you can have a sky high hemoglobin, a ton of iron, and you can still have tissue hypoxia. Um, so really, it's a, the way this really needs to be looked at again metabolically is that um, maybe the upregulation of ferritin and the iron transfer proteins and the hemoglobin, it's a reaction to a tissue hypoxia that the basically the, the body perceives as a uh, as a relative uh, de deficiency of oxygen is upregulating the, the the transport of of the of the of the oxygen even though it's really a metabolic problem it's it's insufficient production of carbon dioxide and i think this is uh, is well known that if you're in a state of hypoxia the your red, red blood red blood cell count will rise also in dehydration as well but if it's chronically high i think it implies tissue hypoxia right yeah, and your body's wanting to do what it can, cell danger, right? It's upregulating yeah. the RBC production, but it doesn't have the machinery. And you said, it's just like a lot of the things we talked about, um, you said how taking something to fix the problem ends up creating the problem. I think that happens over and over and over again with our approaches. But um, yeah, I want to listen, I, I appreciate your time. Um, uh, people obviously know where to find you, but your website is heydut.me, H-A-I-D-U-T.me. And uh, you have amazing content, Georgie. I, I'm always blown away when we talk. So I thank you for your time thank and you. uh, look forward to any further discussions we may have. Yep. Thanks a lot for inviting me. I'll send you the uh, study that I just discovered a few days ago that cortisol upregulates its own production. Uh, and so does estrogen. So really two of the sort of the part of the stress slash, slash shock reaction hormones peripherally are increasing their production. So every time we get stressed, we get chronically sicker, even though we think that the storm has gone away. It really hasn't. And our tissues is still there. Yeah. And, and I think it goes to show that you want, I mean, it's important for having a hormetic effect, yeah. um, but not continuously. Yeah, not continuously. And um, I think that, uh, you know, one of my mentors talks about everything we learned from 
Goldilocks and the three bears, not too little, not too much can be applied to our life. And if you're doing too much or too little, you're, you're, you're going to have the same effect of uh, dysregulation. So thank you so much, Georgie, for thank being you. here. I appreciate your time and good luck with everything else that you do. Thanks for inviting me again. Hi, thank you so much for watching our Age Reversing Blueprint podcast. If you've made it this far, we sincerely thank you for your attention and your interest in reversing your age. If you're looking to get more information on today's topic or other podcasts that we've had, be sure to check out the show notes and be sure to check out drjoelrosen.com. Have an awesome day.